You're listening to And So I Followed an Alternative Religion podcast with Graham McMillan Mason. Episode 6, Kevin Devine. Hi, welcome to episode 6 of And So I Followed an Alternative Religion podcast. Probably the one that I've struggled to record the most and edited the latest because I've had an absolutely awful cold all week. Flu, man flu, I don't know what you call it these days, but you can hear it in my nose. Trying to say the word divine, it's just been almost impossible. And typically I would choose Kevin Divine to be this week's uh, podcast. But yeah, um, welcome back. So it's been two weeks since the last one, which was with Tim Kasher of Cursive. Um, again, a lot of good feedback. I think people love Tim Kasher. I love Tim Kasher. Um, and it was really good to speak to him about like films instead. I kind of didn't expect it to go that way. Um, even though he is a screenwriter, I kind of expected it to circle around Cursive an awful lot. And although it did, it was good to get his perspective on other stuff. And I really enjoyed that chat. Um, but on to this week's podcast, as you've probably noticed, I've got Kevin Devine, who... This was a little while ago we did this podcast now, like maybe a month and a half ago or something. Um, long story short, the 10 questions that I did with Kevin Devine about four episodes or so ago, um, that was the first thing I wanted to put out and I didn't really want to put stuff too close together. Um, but I definitely, definitely wanted to put this out as soon as possible when I'd recorded it because Kevin's someone I've been a big fan of for it's well over a decade like 15 years or something like that and uh i met kevin uh, it must have been about 15 years ago as well at the first show um which was supporting lucero which i think a few people probably remember in the star and shadow cinema in newcastle um since then i've seen kevin countless times i'll, I'll be honest I, I think it's around 20 but i, I couldn't tell you um, the exact amount and Kevin always remembers me we kind of have almost this friendship not friendship like we know each other we know each other's name we know each other's life um, but to say we speak on like a regular daily basis would be a total lie but um, that just shows you how nice Kevin is I think he just has time for people who appreciate his music and what he does um, and regarding the podcast you know I think it's a real testament to the man that he is we get really deep as usual and on his past and what inspired him. Um, we talk about Miracle, Miracle sorry, of 86, um, which was his first band, which, you know, it's always an interesting topic of how people, you know, when you get into music, a lot of the time they want to be in a band and then sometimes it deviates into solo stuff, um, kind of like it has with Kevin, even though it is sometimes a full band. And it's, uh, I find it quite interesting in the sense that he found that solo acoustic project quite early in his life. Um, and we talk a little bit about what brought him to that stage in the podcast. And we cover a lot of other stuff, like his friendship with Manchester Orchestra, uh, which created Bad Books. Of course, his friendship with Jesse Lacey. Um, and basically all the things that he's been through in his life. And he's an interesting, sweet lovely lovely person um and if you do enjoy this podcast and it is the first one you've listened to 
I definitely advise you to go back and listen to the 10 questions, which was from about four weeks ago. Um, just a series of 10 questions I asked Kevin, which is actually pretty funny. And, you know, Kevin, Kevin is a funny guy. I mean, sometimes you listen to his music and you think, you know, he is, he's a super serious, super clever guy, super switched on, um, politically minded, socially minded, but he's, he's a funny dude. Like he really is funny. Like there's so many times when we've had like a chat and it just makes me laugh and he does in this one like a lot he makes me laugh and he made me laugh in the 10 questions but yeah um I've got kind of a cold my my throat's really sore um so I'll kind of just let the podcast speak for itself but as always before I do do that um I'm gonna play a song and I also would say please keep chatting to me on the Facebook page and on the Twitter page that's just cranking up every single week and I love chatting, as you can probably tell, hence why I did this. And I love when new people chat to me. So, yeah, keep up with it. If you enjoy the podcast, if you've listened to this one for the first time or you've listened to the last few, of course, subscribe on iTunes. If you just type in alternative religion, it comes up. Like, you don't need to put the full title in because I'm aware now, like, two months down the line, the title's probably longer than it should have been. Um, or if you're not an iTunes user, we are, of course, on SoundCloud, which is SoundCloud dot com forward slash cfar podcast that's s-i-f-a-a-r so yeah i'm gonna play a song by kevin just now uh by kevin divine there's so much choice um so many things i could have chosen um but i think i'm gonna play one of his new songs um because Sometimes I think with an artist you can listen to a lot of the older stuff and feel quite nostalgic about it and definitely feel like that with Kevin's music which has been with me all through my adulthood. Um, but I want to play his, his new song and um, it's called I Was Alive Back Then uh, from his new album and I think the thing I like best about it is that well he he describes it later on in the podcast about why he likes that song and I very much feel the same about it so I'll let him explain I guess later in the podcast of why but um yeah without further ado here is Kevin Devine and I was alive back then all my lives are coming
Hey, Kevin, how are you? I'm great. I'm great. I'm happy to be talking to you. Awesome. How is the New York morning today? New York morning today has been, um, the sun's out right now. It's probably, I'm trying to remember the, it's probably about 15 degrees, 14 degrees, or your temperature. <laughs> it's probably um, like minus 10 here. It's freezing, but it's not raining, oh, so there's really? a start. Yeah, it's cold. Oh, damn. No, it is that, we, we've had a weird kind of uh, 
schizophrenic winter a little bit where it's been, this week was actually very strange it was uh i'll do fahrenheit because that's where my brain goes we yeah. did it was like 71 and rainy one day and then literally later it was like you know 14 degrees fahrenheit at night which is like negative whatever the hell celsius yeah. over there so it was you know we are living in extreme times and the weather at times reflects that today's been gentle it's a little rainy walked my kid to daycare which is in my neighborhood here in brooklyn and uh went and Got some coffee, got the day started, working from home this afternoon, finishing a song probably, hopefully, if the right words show up, and yeah. talking to you for a little while. Cool. Um, so I think, like, I'll be honest, like, I think everyone knows who you are and what you do, but say if somebody's listening to do this and really they don't. Do you really think that? I, yeah. I, would, I would say I, I think there's a very uh, generous definition of, quote-unquote, <laughs> everyone, but, but, uh, but yeah. Just about. You know, I mean, in, in, in the circle of people who may listen to this and bear in oh, mind, okay. I've been seeing you live for like 15 years. I feel like everyone mm-hmm. should know or knows of Kevin Devine. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they don't, if they don't, in as little words or as many as you want, introduce yourself. Um, well, I am, a, I guess, predominantly songwriter uh, for my, in, in terms of what my public relevance would be uh, from Brooklyn. Um, I, I guess I kind of make music that fits a few different places, and so that's another way of saying it doesn't exactly fit anywhere, which has <laughs> uh, been a blessing and, and, a, and, a, and, a and an impediment yep. at times. Yeah, but um, I make it's rock music that at times leans into things that are a bit more kind of. Um, songwritery folky i guess and then other times are a bit like noisier indie rock kind of punk adjacent uh, i wouldn't exactly say i make punk music but i would say that there's fits of of that spirit in it that's definitely the oh yeah for sure you know so uh, but it's also a kind of like power pop music i think songs are pretty stretched and pretty um they're 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 mainly uh fixated on communicating something yeah um and uh, I've been playing for a while. I've made nine records under my name. I, I made uh, two records and an EP under my old band, Miracle of '86. And then uh, I did. Uh, I've done two records so far in another group called Bad Books, which is me and the Manchester Orchestra guys. And then like a million little bits and bobs here and there. So there's a lot of music. Um, I only put something out called Instigator in uh, about close to end of the year last year that we're still kind of dragging around the world with us. So. I guess that's that's a fair introduction. That maybe, is a hopefully. good introduction. Yeah, yeah. That, that's better than maybe I would have done. So I'm pleased you did it. I'm glad I every day. Um, so anyone who's listened to like the previous editions, I think this is like number five, maybe, um, knows how it goes. Um, if they haven't, as I always say, that means you can listen to the earlier editions to get the lowdown on the. Um, there you go. There's the promotion, right? Um, if, that's right. You're getting good. <laughs> um, if anybody asks me about my childhood uh, musical education, my childhood, I suppose your name would probably be one of the first names that I mentioned. Just you know, because I've for so long. But I suppose mm. the 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 point of the podcast is to get an idea of what happened to you when you were growing up. So just run me through. Obviously, what were your earliest of what turned you want to just music in general? I mean, as early as you want to go back. I mean, I will always associate music and my 
kind of falling in love with it with my mom. She, uh, my mom was, is, um, one of the biggest and the purest music fans I know, just like loves, she's in love with songs and in love with, um, the feeling of, uh, uh, and that goes in a million different directions, but the, the sweetness, the celebration, the sadness, the community or whatever. I mean, she's definitely the first person who kind of like exhibited to me a deep and layered love of, of music and of songs. And, um, when I was a kid, I always, you know, she was, uh, kind of a child of the sixties, you know, she definitely was like a kind of hippie, uh, came a nurse and, um, but her, her musical, uh, vocabulary was, was largely rooted in a lot of that, like Beatles and Dylan and Joni Mitchell and Buffy St. Marie and Joan Baez and Phil Oaks and, um, a lot of like, you know, sixties, pop music and yeah. uh, and and singer songwriter music and folk music and, and also very much like the political side of that stuff like you know that was the first place i heard you know blown in the wind and the times they were changing and, and fill out more like direct and sort of um journalistic kind of folk punk and a, pr- a proto punk not sound wise but like that connection between folk punk and hip hop where it's basically like an instrument of speaking truth to power. Um, you know, that was stuff I heard when I was a kid. I didn't realize it intellectually necessarily, but it was, it was around. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I vividly remember, and I mean, there was also tons of like Mike, my, I had older brothers in the eighties. So it was like Michael Jackson and Bruce Springsteen and, you know, some of the weirder stuff, the cure, uh, my sister liked the replacements. I mean, that was like probably the first like underground rock band I heard. I didn't know that. I just they were another band that was yeah. on. But um, and uh, I mean <clears throat> that music was just a big part. Records, you know, Van Morrison, Moon Dance. I heard that record so much when I was a kid. That was like a big. My mom loved that. Um, so yeah, that was initial and i remember her playing a song called michael from mountains and i had an old that was a Joni mitchell song i had an older brother called michael and i remember being very young very small and like thinking the singer was singing about my brother you know like his (laughs) name in the song and thinking like oh that's about um so definitely my mom and then you know as it branched off from there i remember the first thing that got me into like current all of this is relative to the time i'm talking about but the first thing that was like an awareness of something new newer whatever i was you know i'm 37 so i was seven years old and i heard the opening guitar riff from sweet child of mine by guns and roses Guns-N-Roses. i was at my cousin's house in yeah. and i was like what the fuck is that like i just was <laughs> i just thought it was the coolest sound yeah. i remember it was one of those things like it finished the song and i was like again again like i wanted to hear yeah. it you know and that was the first then through guns and roses i kind of got into like that whole ugly pre-nirvana world of like cock rock pop metal like poison <laughs> and queensrike and uh crew and i you know i was big into that garbage for did for... you have the hair though no i couldn't know i was a kid i mean i was in, like <laughs> Third, this is like third, fourth, fifth, oh. sixth grade, probably. <laughs> so like age eight to eleven, you know. 
Um, just walking around in leather pants in Brooklyn. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. No, I. I, I I definitely was. I was in sweatpants. I had a Guns N' Roses <laughs> T-shirt, but uh, I didn't have the whole kit. But um, <laughs> and then the, I'm one of the people that was of the correct age. That I was twelve, eleven, about to be twelve, and I saw the video for "Smells Like Teen Spirit," and yeah. I was like, "Okay, that's what I want to listen to all the time." Uh, and and you know. Definitely got into the stuff that came with that, for better and for worse, much of it for worse. There was a lot of terrible grunge-era music, just like there was terrible pop metal music. But uh, but Nirvana is exempt from that. They were a different thing. And I actually kind of feel like every year that passes as the popular culture shifts to more and more towards what it is now, the more amazed I am at the cultural moment where like a band like that was allowed to be the biggest band in the world for a little yeah. while because they were legitimately they were huge i mean I, and they were strange kind of remember they it, were though. weird they were legitimately i mean they were you know now they like they sell their t-shirts in h&m and and, yeah. and the department stores they, they are they are michael jackson they are the beatles they are that stuff but at the time they were it's weird. Go back and watch like an MTV Music Awards the two years Nirvana was like around. And even in the context of the time they were in, watching them perform between like the Chili Peppers and Pearl Jam or watching them perform between like Boys to Men and Wilson Phillips or something, you're like, this is really weird. I was, uh, I was watching a, uh, like a video from the time when they released In Utero on YouTube and it was like, they went around like a college campus and asked children, like well, ch- oh, college yeah. kids, like what they thought of in utero, and like some kids were just like, like everyone was like, yeah, I'm so into it, it's so cool. It was like, these really preppy kids, like not not yep. that you can judge a book by its cover, but it was still kind of like watching it was like, holy crap, they were like they were the biggest band on the planet at that point. Well, it indicates to you that what popular culture is and that's the thing like when a band like that gets in the slipstream they are no longer a band like that it doesn't mean that's through no fault necessarily it doesn't mean they can't the music they're making is not like it was such a weird record it's maybe i don't know in my life it's possible that in utero or kid a are the weirdest records to ever be like a number one album yeah, uh, you know that's they're fucking crazy. It's insane that those records were that successful. Oh, it's 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 my, I think my favorite of their Same. records. But um, when you get when MTV plays you as much as they play Madonna, when you are in every on every radio station on every major um, late night television show on you know when you're when you're on the cover of corporate media, magazines, you know, I don't say this is a pejorative, but you're not punk anymore. And it it doesn't mean punk is an attitude. Punk is a frame of mind. And and I'm not saying I don't think it's bad, but, but I just mean you can't, there's nowhere to hide at that point. And so it does make sense that like, I remember vividly remember after Smells Like Teen Spirit started to get played on MTV all the time. The kids that were like the jocks in my junior high school um, loved that shit. 
like would would like sing the guitar riff and like knock into each other in the hallway like making a show of the video or whatever oh yeah yeah um that was not just like the, they that was a weird moment for the kids that were weird and outcast because they too yeah <laughs> but it was kind of like we're liking this for different reasons and still to this day you hear like smells like teen spirit soundtracking like if you go to like a sporting event they'll play that at yeah, some it's point yeah it's not unusual it. to play it no, because it's like, who doesn't get amped up when you hear the first 30 seconds of that song? It never gets you, you boring, like, yeah. No, you want to, like, throw your fucking head through a wall. So, <laughs> um, but that was the band, for sure. And then that band was, like, and R.E.M. was around then, too. And But that was, like, they were, like, the skeleton key bands to, like, so much that's come in the 25 years since, actually. Like, so much, like, they were the bands that, like, Nirvana prompted a closer examination of R.E.M. because they were big fans and I kind of dismissed R.E.M. as like light or like, you know, yeah, his yeah, voice was so weird and his and then you'd go back and, and then like R. Kurt Cobain being like, no, man, R.E.M. is like the best band, the best American band of the last 20 years or something. And you're like, well, then I guess I should I should probably take his opinion and run with it. Yeah. <laughs> or pay attention to it, at least. And and same with the Beatles. That was the first time like the Beatles were like milk or they were like a such a or cereal or they were such like a present part of my childhood that I didn't even think about their existences. Yeah as a thing to be reckoned with. And then like, you know, Kurt Cobain kind of saying at a time when Beatles coolness was at a relative low, he was like, you know, no man, those are fucking perfect songs. Go back and listen to the, you know, and you would, and then you hear as you age, you hear, you hear it, you hear it in the, the chord movements and the yes and lithium. You hear it in about a girl, you hear it in, um, certain pieces in their music that you're like, oh, that's that's him doing his Beatles thing right there. But yeah. um, but so anyway, Nirvana was the skeleton key. Elliot Smith was a later skeleton key. I was 18, saw him play a show, and the interim got into punk and some emo, very select, like Sunny Day Real Estate and Promise Ring and uh, right you know, some spring. of the DC stuff. Rights of Spring, I never really knew. I, they were like a band that I knew I was supposed to like and, and I didn't. I didn't really, I don't even, to, to, to be completely honest with you, I don't even know if I've ever heard it. Okay. It's possible someone like put it on in a car once when I was like driving to a VF hall when I was 16 to play a show or something. Uh, but Rites of Spring, Embrace, I mean, Fugazi, of course, Minor Threat, of course, uh, but, but Rites of Spring and, and, and Embrace, I think, are still bands I know more about than I actually know. Yeah. Uh, but, like, that, you know, Nirvana was also the skeleton key to Sonic Youth and Pavement and Dinosaur Jr. and Sebado and... Uh, super chunk and all this kind of indie rock punk adjacent weird that was happening then and then punk and hardcore a bit through them too um and then like i also like stuff like counting crows like weird like rem was something that bring in some of these kind of rootsier song oriented bands with them you know, and of course, and some somewhere through all of that, eventually you get to like Elliot Smith, Cat Power, and Bell and Sebastian, and that was like college for me. And then that was also those bands prompt a further college was also Bob Dylan. That was like 
I think Elliot made you go back to songwriters and Dylan was my mom. That's what I thought of when I heard I just thought I knew what he used to do that did this and it was my mom's music and and then you go back and listen to it for yourself and I had that thing happen that so many people have with his music where I was like 18 to tr- well I mean still but when I was like 18 to 20 I definitely had a like mind expanding whole shit the words to these songs are unreal thing with yeah. him and and you getting getting into poetry Dylan gets you to Leonard Cohen and you know there's just it, it, a little of all that is Neil Young and you know everything uh, like Sinead links o- yeah 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 course. it all links like... it all links it all links and Elliot linked because he was like punk adjacent too but he was making this really sophisticated music that was um more accomplished than any of those other people like really of here's I mean he was doing stuff that like arrangement wise harmonically that 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 just was like better quite frankly <laughs> like yeah. more that's more elevated but still with that spirit that independent sentiment um so that's kind of like a jumble but that's i you know i can kind of jump from like hearing that music with my mom through that point and know like how all the points connected and and i've gotten into so much music since then but in some sense i was deeply in love with what you were in love with between like in your adolescence and early adulthood because you yeah. just feel things differently yeah of course. um it's nostalgic so in terms of you yeah. remember where you were when you heard certain things and um yep you know it's you know i get that but how how does it bring you to or how did it bring you to sort of miracle of 86 well miracle was initially called uh delusion d-e-l-u-s-i-o-n when i was like i was like a freshman in high school when i named that band and we started to play on staten island and i think we were brought to that by um i was brought to to playing music with people by i was writing songs from the guns and roses time like mm-hmm. sitting in class like i wrote poetry i wrote short stories i wrote I was like edgar Allan poe obsessed and charles dickens and i would write that stuff in, in class and that was kind of like the thing i was good at in school mm-hmm. um and so i would also like sometimes during lessons be like scribbling poems that were songs you know yeah. that i didn't play an instrument yet but i knew that they were supposed to be sung and those were like i'm sure just me trying to a write like these like lyric horror poems like Edgar Allan Poe or write like Axl Rose lyrics being a kid and just trying to like mimic the things you were listening to. Yeah. Um, and then that of course, making like Kurt Cobain and Eddie Vedder and whoever else. And then, uh, I think in sixth grade, I started to learn guitar. I take, I took some, a class in public school in New York, which I'm sure is not offered anymore. That was like an acoustic guitar class. They taught you some basic chords, which was kind of enough to write a song with. Um, and then I took like four months of private lessons on Staten Island and just like asked the guy to teach me fun poison songs and <laughs> Stairway to Heaven and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and then like, you know, would get those like tablature books and try to learn like Guns N' Roses songs. And that was really challenging. And I would just listen to cassettes over and over again. Stop, play, stop, play, stop, play. No, those aren't the right notes. No, those aren't the right notes. So you like found something that was sort of the right notes. And then Nirvana 
Nevermind in specific was like power chords and basically fairly simple song structures. Um, and I could sort of play Smells Like Teen Spirit. Like I could sort of play that and sing it. And I was like, oh, they're in a band and they play like this. So you can be in a band and play music like this. And so I think that started my first bands were definitely like reactions to what i was listening to yeah. like kind of grungy alternative rock punk rock uh you know bits of like smashing pumpkins and stuff like that and and that was like you know end of junior high school very beginning of high school and then we kind of started to play shows i played we had another guy at one point we were a three-piece with no bass player uh, and the the lead guitar player's name was Jimmy Gaffigan, now goes by James Gaffigan, and was the chair of the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra, <laughs> and is now, I believe, chair of an orchestra in Switzerland. He's like he was like a kid that had. I wrote songs. He was like in seventh grade, flawlessly playing every Metallica guitar solo, and you were <laughs> like, "Oh my god, how is he doing that?" You know, like yeah. I, I was struggling to play Lithium, and he was like playing the leads in Metallica songs with his eyes <laughs> or whatever. Um, so you know, we played a show at a dance that was like a fundraiser for a muscular dystrophy association, uh, and at, we played like two original songs I wrote and three like Nirvana or Stone Temple Pilots covers or something. And then uh, our bass player Chris saw the show and was like, "You need you need a bass player, and you need to you know write." He was two years older. He had like all these ideas. You need to write songs and less cover songs and. Um, so we like had him in the band and then Jimmy basically immediately left. Cause I think he was like, I'm going to go be a, you know, chairman of an orchestra somewhere in 20 years. I don't need to be in this. Band anymore. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we, so that band, me, him, me, Chris McGowan and a kid called Joey Martin, Joseph Martin, we were delusion and we started to play on Staten Island. And then, you know, eventually you play in Brooklyn, you play on Long Island, you play in Pennsylvania, you play in New Jersey. You know, we were like kind of, starting to kind of make the regional punk hardcore emo racket uh and and i was getting into like some of the songs were like my my attempt at a pavement ripoff attempted a super chunk ripoff and then my attempt at 20 more nirvana ripoffs and then <laughs> my attempt at a record's worth of sunny day real estate ripoffs and you know like you're, you're trying to kind of just imitate the things you're yeah, listening yeah. to at the you time to i wasn't really like course yes and I wasn't really going back yet. I wasn't really like writing my, you know, Dylan ripoff or Beatles ripoff or you know, you know, yeah. uh, series of attempts to write a song as good as Elliot Smith ripoffs or whatever. It just was like you're kind of emulating what's there and and also emulating like I'm a hardcore kid and I wasn't going to write hardcore music, but I had to write music that was energetic enough to be performed on hardcore shows you know yeah, even if we were like the melodics out you had to still like be able to play next to like some fucking crazy hardcore band that was gonna like yeah fit in some way yeah yeah be very physical but at those shows i was still getting up and playing like an acoustic song every every night or a song that was just me and that was like to me that was rem that was nirvana unplugged that was fucking august and everything after that first counting crows record that was like a sweetness thing and 
Sinead O'Connor, who I got into when I was around that age, too. That was like a confrontation. I thought she was so confrontational for a pop singer. Oh, and yeah, she was. She still is, I suppose. Um, yeah, I think so. As much as she doesn't release stuff as much as she used to, you can still, like, hear sound bites from stuff she said, which is still kind of, uh, in some cases, right. some cases, I'm not sure, but... She's still confrontational. Yeah, unflinching. Yeah, yeah, right or wrong, she's not afraid to say what she feels. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that was all... And, and and there were people early on, like hard kids I really respected that were older than me, that would like... They would be into the band just fine, but when I would get up and do that thing, they would be like... I mean, I vividly remember that. I remember like these ki- these two guys that were like the kinds of Ian Mackay, Henry Rollins figures of our scene. One was like yeah. a charismatic frontman in a band, and the other guy was like the d- made everything happen. Book shows, had a distro, you know, had bands from out of town sleep on his floor. Very, you know, very much those archetypes. And I remember them independently being like, "That's what you should be doing. You should be doing that." You know, like the the kind of folk singer thing. Um, because there was something about the way it communicated that they felt was more direct. And I feel like I've spent my whole life in music kind of vacillating between like wanting to step on the distortion bell yeah. and wanting to like be a folk singer. Uh, and, and, and so I try to be both and then a bunch of things in the middle. But that definitely goes back to all of this stuff we're talking about, all the different data, all the different... You know, they're all just songs, yeah. and whether it's somebody, you know, through a fuzz box with a loud drummer straining his voice, or whether it's someone sitting down with an acoustic guitar and, like, confronting you that way, um, that's where it all came from. And so I, I definitely feel like um, that time period is still very much embedded in what's happening now for me, even as I draw small dots that go back to like delusion playing at VFW halls in fucking Staten Island, 1996 or whatever. And then miracle became the band's name when we were asked to be on a compilation by this label deep Elm records. And they were doing this series called the emo diaries. (laughs) And they asked us to be on the second one and, they were like, you know, if you look back at it now, like Jimmy World was on that, and oh, really? Texas is the reason. And the I, promise, say, I mean, they were like, no, I know the name. Like, I mean, there's not too many years between us, but I remember Deep Elm from just when you mentioned it. I was like, I know that. Like, mm-hmm. should I know that? But I mean, Jimmy yeah, World they were, huge they were, now. they were a New York thing that then moved to like Kentucky or something. John oh. Zuch was the guy's name, um, and like. I think we were all kind of feeling like we'd outgrown. Delusion is such a kids band name that we were like, we should name it something. And that was really the time period where I was probably closest to emo music. And I was like, Miracle of 86 just sounded like the name of a band we would have played with. You know, it was like it felt like that kind of band. Um, and, and it was a little nod at childhood and the Mets and they won the world series that year. And that thing emo does, which is like immediately nostalgizes or sets in sepia tone, something that's kind of small and personal, you know, and makes it feel bigger and more meaningful. And, you know, um, and then that happened. Miracle started to kind of quickly, like we were on that comp that got like national distribution. The song was received well. We 
we played in that was the first time we started in Manhattan like at clubs like the Mercury Lounge and Brownies and CBGBs and the Wetlands and all these like kind of famous turn of the century late like 90s turn of the century New York like rock clubs Coney Island Highs punk rock club um we were doing all of that stuff and then um I met our we were a three piece through all that I met this guy Mike Robertson in college who liked like a lot of the bands I did and a lot of like indie rock stuff and Blur and Shingsteen and all this shit and he he became the lead guitarist he, he wrote some songs we eventually switched up the drummer spot and met Mike Skinner who was older than us and had been in a band that was like signed to Mercury Records and was connected to like the burgeoning Williamsburg thing he was like living yeah. first person I knew that lived there knew all of those people and all these loft parties and this exciting art and you know things that would become like fucking yeah 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 as an lcd sound system and fucking tv radio and all that he was like around all of that and he became our drummer he also kind of helped like fucking shape us up a little bit and be like you guys gotta grow up like we have to like <laughs> so we kind of like changed and then that band became this formidable thing that was like bits of the last record, which was called Every Famous Last Word, is, the, to me, that was like, this. I was 22 when we wrote that, same time as I was writing what became Make the Clocks Move. And that was like a real jump in terms of like focus and quality and just identity. Like it felt like I was writing stuff that felt more like me and yeah. less like a pastiche of all the things I liked. Something um, you're a bit more comfortable in. There's, I think anyone who creates, I, I know what you mean with that, you're on a completely different scale, but yeah, like the stuff I write now makes me feel like it's me as opposed to what I did when I was like 19. It was kind of sure. like, yeah, so I get that. I totally understand that. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, you can't, you, you can feel it in the moment. You're like, oh, this, is, this feels cool, uh, but you don't necessarily know that until later. You know, yeah. kind of like look backwards and you're like, oh, those that's 2002 is where it feels like it turned like towards like I kind of started to figure out what I was trying to say, I guess, and how I wanted to say it like aesthetically. And that band got really, I thought, really good. And, and, and we started to play more around. We started to tour and we put out a record and went to Europe and, you know, did South by Southwest in the States and like went on tour with a Saddle Creek band called Sorry About Dresden and we're like opening shows for bands like Cursive and you know Desparasados and Rilo Kylie and Promise Ring and Rival Schools and you know like the quality of what we were doing and the quality of who we were doing it with yeah kind of started to change and similarly for my solo stuff at that point like I'd started to get reacted to a little differently and I was like doing shows with some of those people as well, some Bright Eyes and bands like Lamb Chop and Ockerville River and, you know, just like playing a Bob Mould from Husker Du. And, so did um, you do them aligned together? It was like Miracle of 86 didn't go solo, it was like solo during Miracle of 86? Well, I kind of, when I was in college, I made, we made the first Miracle of 86 record in 1999 in Williamsburg in a studio that is now in the Urban Outfitters. Um <laughs> because that's the march of progress yeah and we made i made uh circle square the first record i put out under my name on a very small label in the states and on a, a somewhat larger at the time label in germany called defiance um and those that cologne 
Yeah, yeah. Because and I went to uh, I think I told you this, but I went to a a vinyl shop in oh, Cologne. Underdog Records. Underdog, yeah, and I picked up yep. Rogue Love '86 and pretty much your whole back catalogue. I think I spent like a hundred dollars, well, a hundred pounds or a hundred oh euros, whatever. Yeah, it's and that dude Hoffy who runs that shop along with a guy called Roland, ran Defiance Records. Oh, okay. And, and they... There's a guy called Ralph Demart who ran a booking agency called Two for the Road, and Ralph happened to be at the at Brownies on a night Miracle of 86 played, maybe with, like, Rainer Maria or something, and he was there randomly, and he really liked it, and he asked for my email address, lived in Berlin... We emailed. He said he had a tour going on for a band called Kofax and asked if I wanted to open for my solo stuff. Because I think I gave him Circle Gets the Square. Because I don't think Miracle had their record there at the time or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, he brought it back to Europe and the Defiance people were like, we'll put this out. And then like I would, that record came out, Circle Gets the Square, to like 500 people, tops in America. Maybe less. Maybe, you know, I don't even know if my there were members of my family that knew I made that record. And um, I have it somewhere. It actually got, like, properly distributed in Europe. And, like, I was able to, like, like you know, Germany, like, Rolling Stone reviewed it. And these other, like, I was like, what the fuck? And, like, went and toured <laughs> with Koufax opening for them. And, like, the first night in Munster, like, went on stage. And there were, like... 50 kids that knew the words to the songs and i was like this is nuts like there aren't even 50 people on staten island that know this music let alone yeah i mean if you here even if you go back to that shop now i mean literally i was in there for like like we went for like a day trip we were staying mm-hmm. in frankfurt it was like my, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. my wife's brother's wedding who is to a german girl and we drove like over to Cologne, and we looked for like a we looked for some vegan food, and we found this place, and I was like, oh, cool, there's a vinyl shop next door, and like they had like every brand new record, every Kevin Devine record, Miracle yep, of '86, yep. and the guy like was so quiet. If you need help, just let me know. They had like every Converge record. It was the most insane record shop, and I stayed there for like three hours just shopping. It was a little <laughs> bit disturbing, yeah. if I'm honest, but um, no one is that long in a shop. They send they they definitely. I mean, they were a defiance in the mid 2000s was like uh doing really well they had a couple of german bands that were that were like real things and they they put out um what's that band oh my god portugal the man for a long time for a long time who in in germany rocky's like still playing 500 capacity rooms like people are He's he's I say that not as a disparagement to what he does anywhere else, but I mean like in that part, in Germany is probably the place he's still like the commercially. Yeah. He does quite um, well in Europe. He's like he I think he's he does okay over here. Like I, I'm honestly I, I'm I'm not a huge fan myself. Just not my mm-hmm, thing. But mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. I have loads of friends who are like heavily inspired by what he does, and like he yeah. does okay here too. I think he does best on the continent, and then it seems like Europe, uh, England, and America—it's—it's—it's it's, it's the same. But it's okay. But I think over there he's still. Huge. We played a festival together, and I think he headlined the stage I was on, and there was like a full, you know, there's like this kind of weird little, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a bleacher seating kind of thing, like yeah. uh, sloping upward. And it was awesome. It was like a crap, full crowd. And it was nice to get to see that. But but point being, um, 
they were happening at the same time then because nothing was happening. We were just making stuff. It wasn't like we thought, like I wrote a bunch of songs when I was at school that were acoustic songs and they were not songs. And I was like, well, I could just sit on this or I could like make it not thinking really much of anything about yeah. like what it would be or not be. I was playing show work and that to me was like, all right, cool. We're on our way. We're able to play like any club we want. And we're playing with good bands, and I'm still a student, and I have, and this is great. Do you know what I mean? Like at that point, yeah, of I was course, like, we, we made it. Um, some, sometimes you just you don't look at it from a, a career perspective or what you want to do. That when you first start a band, you just want to be in a band that can play shows to people who give a fuck. Like yeah, and and I was aware of the fact that like I, I guess I never had an expressly careerist bent about the way I looked at my career, but I was acutely aware of the fact that I didn't really want to be doing anything else, and I was definitely, like, making choices in my life toward as much space as possible to do it as much as possible, Mm -hmm. but I was not thinking about, like, taking over the world or getting rich or if I had grand designs they were probably like modeled on the kinds of bands I'm talking about where I thought like like in my head my booking agent in the states and I had like a thing about this once where he like was (laughs) kind of like busting my balls a little bit but he was like we're talking about all this stuff and he's like but do you understand Nana and R.E.M. and Bob Dylan are like the biggest pop bands ever like these are people who like sold millions of records for major multinational recording corporations and were like totally used the media to become celebrities and uh, he's like you act like these bands like fucking stopped like they peaked at like the bowery ballroom or something like that (laughs) and or the death institute or whatever and in my head that's because that's kind of how i think about it yeah i don't think about it to me, it's like irrelevant, immaterial, and on some level, that Nirvana, Bob Dylan, REM, whoever became for a minute, or for in Bob Dylan's case, and fucking, you know, his entire adult life became like, you know, fixtures of popular culture. I just see it more as like the uh, idiosyncratic things about them that made them interesting in the context of the culture at large. And so I always just wanted, even Elliot, like, I Elliot didn't get famous, but he got too famous because it fucked him up. I don't think fame does anything good for anybody. I think it just makes people fucking crazy and expect too much of things and disassociated from what normal people's lives are like. And I think most people that are pursuing kind of experience are pursuing it from a place of thinking there's something wrong with them that getting that will fix. Yeah. And I, I just don't know many people that get there and actually feel fixed by it. Most people I know that have gotten even close to it either rejected it because they felt like it was making them crazy or get swallowed up by it and get made crazy. So, um, so anyway, all of that was to say I wasn't thinking about like taking over the world, but I had somewhere in my head was thinking of making enough money to rent my apartment from music, you know, yeah. or, or something like that. And eventually what happened with Miracle and these solo stuff, and there's 
probably five different stories about this depending on who you ask. The best I can recall and the best I can access given years of processing it was they were happening at the time, but when we started to on the course to every famous last word, it was clear that the band was getting more serious. Uh, we were on a path. There was a plan. You know, we were like starting to kind of get a little bit of attention paid. And there were already fractures and frictions within the band because that's what bands do, especially young men who drink and do drugs. And, and so um, I had started writing songs again that were like, you've probably heard the record Make the Clocks Move, that yeah, they were course. like these folk songs or whatever, pretty spare. And I was showing them to the band and the drummer was very into it, wanted to play on it, wanted to produce it, wanted to be like in it, whatever you, yeah, he's like these, he was essentially like, I'm not his words, not mine. I think you are going to be a great songwriter and I want to be connected to your writing. And his thing was like, whatever the fuck you do, I want to do it. And so my thing was like, well, let's find a place in Miracle, this stuff to live, because there's a lot of great bands that are a lot of great things. They're not just great loud bands, but they're, you know, they're a bit, they do a number of things. And I think my head, I was like, why can't we be Wilco? Or why can't we make a Nirvana Unplugged every once in a while? Or why can't we be R.E.M. or one of these bands that can bear a few different or the Beatles or whoever and wear a few different hats write a few different kinds of things that was around the time of the Iraq war it was around the time of, of Bush uh, and some of the songs started to become a bit more politicized mm -hmm. and one of the musicians in the band the guitar player liked the songs but didn't want to be in a political band and I respect that I think some people don't um, and this player it was a little bit more personal. That makes sense. Cause growing up, he felt, he felt like I was moonlighting on the band, or I was like trying to like, um, like why do you need to do this other thing when you're the principal songwriter in this band? And I so I would be like, well, because I just wrote 15 songs that don't sound like the record, and if your suggestion is. You know, if I can project that over 10 years, I'm supposed to write 150 songs and not play them because you don't like them yeah. or whatever. That doesn't feel like it's going to be a tenable path for me. But buttheads on and But eventually, I mean, and there was some like kind of silly nastiness that got spread around, uh, you know, back and forth. And it happens. Regrettable stuff that it happens. And but But that's. So Make the Clocks Move was born out of parts of that band, to me, parts of that band rejecting it. And I was like, well, f cool, I'll just make another one of those records I made, and again, nobody's going to like buy it. I'll just put it out, or I'll just make it and see what, what comes next. And then to my side, Triple Crown Records got interested through this guy, Mike Dubin, and then Triple Crown kind of... Um, that was the first record, I think, that came out through them, Deja and Tandu, which, like, to this day is, like, you know, the record that... I'm sure if you looked at Triple Crown's catalog and they've put out a lot of really great music, nothing has even sold one one-hundredth of... one-tenth, one-tenth 
thing. Yeah, that that was uh, huge and, and so data. fast after like your favorite weapon as well. It was yeah, yeah. So so I feel like oh, and he, he put that out too. So I mean, I'm sure he's probably sold in the vicinity of I don't know eight hundred thousand to a million brand new records. You know, so you know. I don't know any of that. I'd played a show or two with Brand New on Long Island, and at that time, I wasn't really a big pop punk guy, and I didn't really get that record. And I, you know, it just yeah, and it, it was, wasn't it was pop punk at the time. I mean, it's people think of Brand New now, and it's changed. But when it first came out, yeah, it was it was pop punk with lyric for me ly- lyrics that were different. But it was pop punk on the face for, of no, it. Yeah, for sure, there was no question that even then. I remember in my drunk, youthful, indie rock snobbery seeing them play and being like aware that they had charisma, aware that they were like enthusiastic and the kids were reacting to it, aware that Jesse had a thing that even in that context felt like it was brushing up against the corners of that context already and were like he was like kind of already on his way out of it to some extent um and i liked them i liked them as people and i remember liking him a lot and that we were kid i mean i'm talking 2000 1999 2000 but i I remember but i I also was just honestly even that i didn't like their band i didn't really know it because i didn't really sit with it and i didn't really know what was happening with it and then you know miracle had put out every famous last word through a label called Lakeshore that had done like a granddaddy record and some other stuff. And, um, we had done South by, we had done a U.S. tour. We had done a, U- a Europe tour and the band was like not getting along very well by the end of the Europe tour. Yeah. The clocks move had been recorded. We got home from Europe. The band kind of sort of broke up in Europe, but finished the tour and like agreed to go home and address me home. Um, and then when I was in Europe, at the end of that, I got the guys that booked our shows there asked if I wanted to stay and do a week of solo shows. And I said, sure. And my, so it was happening concurrently, but, uh, and then my, my dad passed away. And so when I went, I, and I went home and he was, you know, not, he had a stroke mm-hmm. And when that happened, and, and, and that was September, Make the Clocks Move was slated to come out in October, I just, given everything else that was going on, all of a sudden, like, the amount of energy that was required to fight for a thing that seemed so clearly bumping up against its expiration date, and for what... It seemed like at that time it was like, so, you know, kill myself for the privilege of doing a ton of the administrative work this band needs to have done for it and writing 85% of its songs to get yelled at for writing these other songs. You know, I don't know. I just got to a place where I was like, this seems like, what the fuck am I doing? Um, and I might not have gotten there that quickly. My dad hadn't passed because that just sucked up all available energy. And yeah. it was like, who gives a shit about this? This is like not Secondary. important. Secondary, yeah. Yeah, and and so we kind of made a decision to put it on pause. Make the clocks move came out, and because of the triple crown thing, and because of triple crown was positioned with Deja doing so well, got like 
just way more attention than I thought. And I, by the way, it probably still sold 2,000 records or something at the time, but got like just way more press. And, and, you know, like the Sunday New York Times reviewed the record and Rolling Stone and all these like places at that point that were like um, Paste and Harp and all these magazines that are now kind of half dead were like very visible then. Yeah. I remember kind of being like, oh shit like this is yeah that's the moment yeah this, this is doing this right. is different yeah. this is yeah something's different even though it shows to fucking 50 people still or 40 people whatever it was like oh this is different than it was two years ago and and this is different than well then even with all the enthusiasm around what was happening with miracle that was not happening for miracle like we were not getting that kind of press attention and stuff like that so uh, you know, then like thinking what the next while was, was doing, I just was doing shows and kind of putting my head together. I did some stuff with like Dashboard and the Weaker Thens in the UK and Europe and then um, spot shows in the, in, in the city. We couldn't really get on tour. And then Miracle ended up doing one last tour the following summer uh, in Europe to honor the label because they did such a good job for us. And uh and that was it. Miracle finished like in 2004 and didn't play a show again until 2013. Um, but yeah, anyway, that's a really long, because it's a really long winding thing. The point is, it, it was, I think all of it connects, all of it gets me to Miracle Delusion, to the solo stuff, because all of the material is in some way a reaction to all of this music I was taking in. And I think I just absorbed so much of both sides of it that I was writing both sides of it and the the specific band I was in could not um could not uh really be the conduit for that. Maybe another group of people could have, maybe another maybe if I was a different person at that time in my life, which is a huge thing. It's always like it's not all, all I, I don't in any way mean to intend to paint a picture that these they, we were kids i don't know those guys were yeah of course doing what they were doing and i was doing what i was doing but it just felt like there were a million reasons why that was not going to work but but one of them was that this material writing wasn't going to work and of course the irony is that over the course of my career i ended up kind of moving not back to but at a different kind of expression of some of the sorts of sounds that Neil was fucking with towards the end of its life. I think that a record like Instigator and parts of something like Bubblegum, yeah. there's a bit of miracle in there, but I also I think it's that. more like a 34, 5, 6-year-old writing that stuff than like a 22-year-old writing that stuff. But, yeah. you know. And it's, so. it's funny, I mean, we spoke at the um, the Glasgow show uh, which was like what last month maybe it was it was a month ago a month and change yeah and it's like i remember discussing i'm saying like oh this is like the 15th time i've seen you like i, I can't believe i've seen that many times and i've been seeing you since i was like 17 or whatever i'm like 30 now and it's <laughs> i remember like discussing kind of how it was kind of weird how we'd sort of almost grown up together in a kind of odd way if that makes sense i remember you saying yeah that and yep I remember, it's funny you should mention about how you were writing political stuff and there was members of your band that, that didn't necessarily want to do that. And you mentioned, obviously, about going on to Triple Crown at the same time as well. And I think, you know, if I remember rightly, around that sort of period when, I mean, I think you've always had a, a political aspect, but I think 
you know, there is sometimes people worry about writing things politically because it puts like a new face on what you're doing and it also in a really bad way, which it shouldn't be, it does almost present a risk. Um, but I remember when we were talking about it and I was saying, you know, maybe when I first listened to, to your stuff, I wasn't that politically aware and I feel like your music's helped me be politically aware and where I am now is like, I'm really politically aware, but you know, how important do you think it is that musicians kind of forget what risks that could be and carry the bat on if you want for things like social injustice, like private first class, fiscal cliff, uh, stuff like that really struck a chord with people. But how important do you think it is for maybe not always political reasons, but like social injustice reasons or so like social aspects of what goes on? How important do you think that is for a musician to to carry that bat, if you will? Well, I mean, I will say, you know, it's important to me. I I don't know that I feel qualified or comfortable saying what should or shouldn't be part of the songwriter or musician kit or the uh, uh, public figure kit or, you know, I, I I think it's important in the sense that I write songs about personality. I write songs about, you know, the uh, the nature of being a person. Mm-hmm. And that's about the only thing I could say I could point out as like a through line through all of my music is I think I'm like poking at the corners of personality, what 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 we think about, what we what we you know, turn around, what what it means to be a person. And 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 I think there are like small private ways that you know that are more maybe like i don't know philosophical whatever that that uh, is is a fascinating subject to me behavioral is a is a big one and then there's like larger ticket ways where it's like how you know how we connect to one another and mm-hmm. to systems of power and how empathy uh you know is a real tool to get you to be less fearful and angry (laughs) and judgmental from this is all self-directed it's not like always if i'm pointing a finger out it's because i'm pointing four fingers back i'm always considering like my my complicity in this stuff my role because we all play one um and i think it is to me so to me just to me it would seem like artistically and intellectually dishonest to not write about that stuff on some level because it's happening. It's happening just as much as making noises with my kid or uh, thinking about um, family or uh, uh, some weird memory uh, daydream of... uh, you know some druggy episode or you know, whatever yeah, like of course. thinking about what it means to relate to people thinking about just stories you know it happens part of the story right now is like and and always but it, and undeniably to me the last long time is like you know what's happening above us and how we connect to that and and um but I don't I have very close friends that are musicians that don't feel like that at all and that feel like it's in fact like church and state, you know, 
And I don't think it's my job to tell them that's not true because everybody's, because it's not not true. Everybody's prerogative mission is different. Yeah. Um, I can't not do it on some level. Like I can write songs, obviously, that aren't expressly about that. Even when I'm trying to write stuff that's like broad or simpler, it sneaks in somewhere. Some kind of like. And not always just the social justice thing, but just some kind of like specificity thing that's like, <laughs> I try to write in a voice that isn't mine and always end up writing in my voice. And, <laughs> yeah. and so, you know, I think that what I think about with that, though, that connects to something else we talked about like an hour ago is I'm less and less inclined to like go, I will like spread things as I think they are important. I will spread things that are that through like, there's like writing about something, singing about something. There's like what you do in private. And then there's like the sort of social media performance that is now part of like being a performer, musician or a songwriter or whatever, yeah. a private citizen and anything that I feel like I do feel like less responsible to retweet every petition I get sent or put up a picture on Instagram that indicates Every time I think about one of these issues that I stand in, so you know, sometimes I do it, and a lot of times recently I'm like, part of that feels a little bit like saying, like, look, look, I, I me too, I think it too, and maybe that's what we need right now. Maybe we need like, yeah, you know, of course, because there's so many people that feel alone or disenfranchised need to feel sane, too and maybe many, it I helps. To, yes. But I also feel like a lot more circumspect about that for some reason right now than I even did like a month ago. I, I really do. It might just be the deluge. It might just be being home. It might just be, you know, but I feel just very aware of this like constant, the constancy of that, that thing right now, like the side taking and the message expanding and i kind of feel like um i'm wrestling with its utility and i'm wrestling with its what's the right word value i yeah. guess uh I, I don't have an answer to that i'm just speaking to it there's an open-endedness to it because i'm just kind of like not totally sure where to land but um but in terms of writing about it uh and trying to align my politics with what i write about i i feel a responsibility to do that that is equally rooted in like growing up in a working class family, hearing that folks that my mom played, hearing that hardcore and punk music that all those other people were playing and I was playing too, and just trying to like grow up in a world where no one's going to be, we can do a little better, seems like, for each other. Yeah, like, that's that a really good feels, way to sum it up, I think. You know, that feels imperative to me, but I can't say it should feel imperative to. Um, any other band or songwriter, it's kind of that is a personal choice. An individual choice, yeah. I think so. You know, I'll be honest. I, I could speak to you like all day, man. Like, I think literally. <laughs> no, it's been good. I think if there was like twenty-four hours, we would still have stuff to talk about. But oh yeah. Um, but that's just a, an invitation for you to come back. So there you go. Um, there you so go. We've we've covered like a quarter of the stuff that I think we could, but. Before you go, there's a thing I do with everyone. Um, sure. And it's just 
pick two tracks from your back catalogue if you if nobody heard of you before that you'd listen to those two though the two things i'm most proud of god that's so hard because <laughs> there's so much of it yeah but uh, i would have to pr- i guess i would have to pick brother's blood i mean i feel like brother's blood is in some ways uh as defining a song at, a, at least at a certain time it served as which is a weird thing for a song to be both of these things it was defining and it was a pivot it was like a different thing that also somehow managed to sum up everything that came before it and point to a lot of what was going to come from it yeah um and i think message wise it does sort of it sounds like and it is an intensely personal song but it's a personal song that's apparently pretty it's personal to specific and i also think there is a quality to what it's talking about that is um there is an outward social quality to that message too um there is a quality to what that song is saying that is a bit about like letting go of that which does not serve you yeah and it's a it's a a great song if someone i mean I hope people have heard it, but if they haven't, no, I'd fully agree with you. I think it's it's something that I almost like when I see you live. I feel like I almost it sometimes. I like it that much. Like, well, thank you. And I feel like you know that song is also you know, and there are songs that you know. I I am aware of the fact that if there if people know my music, there's like a top five or top ten, and that likely ball game is one of those likely. Um, just stay is one of those likely cotton crush is one of those like i know the ones that get the <laughs> and if they came in later it's bubblegum or little bulldozer yeah. you know like there you tell who showed up when um but right now for me i would probably say i was alive back then i mean to me i feel like i was alive back then is a song that is particularly um it connects with dots through everything we just spent an hour talking about. It feels very reflective, and... is it? Like, even the way, like, when I live, I feel a lot of the time I don't see you perform. I do feel, and, and it's funny you said you, you, you wrote poems and stuff when you're young, because I feel like you tell a story of, mm-hmm. like, your own sort of life. And I feel like when I seen that for the first time at Glasgow at Stereo last month, like, I felt you were reflecting and you were kind of, like, not push out being like I'm comfortable with what I'm singing about being in the past and I'm comfortable with where that is at in my life if that makes sense it does I mean it's it's that's the goal that's the effort I don't know you know sometimes you feel more aligned with that than others and sometimes you feel itchier in your skin and you know the 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 the, the magnet of nostalgia can be warping and strong and unfair um, but uh, but that is a song that is an attempt to kind of reconcile a bunch of those selves. And um, and there are very specific details in that song, but I feel like there are also moments in that song that are broad enough that they override the specificity of that. Like, people can still relate to it even if they have no fucking clue yeah. who Lenny Dykstra and Wally Backman are or who Kevin Kolinkowski is or, or whatever. You know, like, there's... I did make it hyper specific to my life in the service of something more everyone has, whether it was Batman and Spider-Man or football players from Manchester United or something, everybody has 
those childhood heroes they played at with their brother or their best friend or their sister or whatever. Everybody has the kid that were funny they got drunk with and talked about who they were going to marry when they were older. Like, you know, yeah, everybody has those people. I just named them in the song. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, that song to me was one of those things you finish and you're like, well, maybe that's fine if that's it. Yeah. <laughs> like, if another one doesn't come, and they do, but if another one doesn't come... That's a pretty good closure I, on I, the book, effectively. Yeah. yeah, I said it. I said what I was trying to say as closely as I'm ever going to. I'm never going to say it. Never comes out the, the way you're in your head, but it's as close as I can get. That's what it kind of felt like. So I would probably right now pick those two songs. I'm sure if you asked my audience... Uh, they would tell you a bunch of different selections, and that's what's great about um, having people listen to your music. So, But that's the two, I think, right now, I would say. I'd agree. And, you know, um, I, I really want to thank you for the, the, the story you've given today and, and the time you've given to me and to people who are listening, I think. I, I'm sure I don't speak alone here, but I've loved what you did for such a long time, and I genuinely hope that I personally always have that Um Till I'm like 55 age that I may be because I feel like you're someone that you know no matter what happens in my life I'll always be able to go back or, or go see you and still feel the same guy that I was when I was 17 and I think mm. um getting the backstory on it for me is something I've I've had for like I don't know how long I've been to you it's been a long time but and I think well, a lot glad. of people would feel the same and I think it's so nice that you're so open about stuff and so honest but still you know, not laid bare and vulnerable. I think you're a very well put together person, and I think I want to thank you very much for coming on, like massively. Oh, Graham, it's it's a pleasure, and and you know, um, I I feel very much like uh, people like you. I get to I got to know through this, and then you kind of get to in a small way actually know and see through the years and and you get to that's a reciprocal relationship it's not just that you feel that way and so um when you reached out like when you were doing something like this or something i was happy to kind of be part of helping uh hopefully kind of establish with you in some way so of course and i think um, yeah for the people listening i really want like i really want them to know that you did kind of reply immediately it wasn't a case of this wasn't dragged out over six months you were like yeah of course and i think it's testament to the person you are and kind of the value you give to the people who come and watch you and and support you and i think that's fucking awesome in short well i try to (laughs) i try to and i'm sure that there's days that I get it and there's days that I don't. And I, I, you know, I had an interaction with somebody recently who was like, you know, said that we'd met a while ago on tour 10 years ago and I was short tempered and I'm sure that happens too. And I, and I, and I, and I, you know, I, I, you try to not take people for granted because you don't get to do the people. Um, and then also you're a person too. And some days you're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're a human being and I better think than others. Yeah. I've, but, but yeah, you're a good one at that. And well, uh, no, that's fine, dude. I, I like to be honest and, and not gush. I'm not that kind of guy, but mm-hmm. yeah, as a person, I always feel like if you're having a human day, as we'll call it, it's it's never from a bad place. You're just a human being, man, and you've never been short with me. So, um, well, thanks. No, that's fine, and I, I hope that you know you have a baby now. Um, mm-hmm. You're you're married, and I hope in the future everything goes as it should for you. All right, I genuinely mean that. You too. Thank you.
Thanks. No problem, Kevin. All right. You guys, the day I'll yep. let you get on with stuff. And thanks as always. Yeah, you too. See you, Graham. See ya. I just love that guy. I really enjoyed that podcast. Like, listening back to it tonight was like, I forgot almost, you know, how much I enjoyed it. But, um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. I really, really do. Again, I just feel that the guests that I speak to have given me so much. And um, I hope that that's given you something, if you're a listener as well, because um, people like Kevin, Tim, Justin, Eric, Sammy, um, all tremendous and lovely people um who have you know real stories real integrity and and um they're real you know shine beacons to me in the world we have currently when i i feel like you know i'm getting less and less heroes but yeah i hope that was something that you really enjoyed um and i hope that you come back for the next podcast which don't forget it's actually a two podcast in one week 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 yeah two podcasts in one week um it's 10 questions uh we're going to be having 10 questions with chris freeman of manchester orchestra uh or formerly of manchester orchestra sorry um which was a podcast where that i did um when i was pretty drunk um so yeah we we duet uh we we say some stuff which is probably um, probably not what some people would call PC, but, um, I guess that's the way it goes, but it's probably the most hilarious one I've done, I don't know how much of that is my fault, but, uh, yeah, tune in, um, I will see you on Friday, if you do, I'm gonna post that up Friday at about five o'clock, um, cool, okay, thanks for tuning in again, thanks, bye. Daydream dying Cover corner Jigsaw mine Black side Floodlight Halls of home